You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Lex Van Geen. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. On the subject of lead, you did a study here right in the aftermath of the fire at Notre Dame. That's right. So this was maybe nine months after the fire, and I had been struck by visually the fire, the smoke, the yellow smoke, which is a telltale indicator. The fact that 400 tons of lead so constituted the roof, the covering of the roof of the cathedral, and a lot of that had volatilized. But no one really knew how much of that. So that got me thinking, and I happened to be in Paris at the time. So I thought, if it's so much lead, could it be that it affected the population living you know, within, say, a kilometer of the cathedral? I thought there wasn't really a lot of information, clear information about what had happened, what had been measured. I thought some more openness, transparency was needed. And so I drew two circles around the cathedral, one with a 400-meter radius and another one with a 1,000-meter radius. And I divided up so that I would collect maybe 20 or 40 samples along each of these circles. I think it was 40 plus 40, so 80. And, and that I would try to find soil that could be a good reservoir, sort of collector of whatever was falling out from the sky. All I did in the following weeks was to walk around. I had sort of located these. I had put a, made a map in my maps and I said, okay, I'm going to try to find soil. So I scooped a little bit of soil and then I tested them, the soil, at first at home with a kit that one of my students developed uh, for lead. So that's a visual indicator. And then later I analyzed these same samples, which had been dried and sieved to some fairly homogeneous grain size. I analyzed them by X-ray fluorescence at the lab. And so what we found from this uh, testing is that there indeed was a pattern. There were higher levels of lead towards the West. And then with a, a colleague, a statistician, we tried to integrate and calculate how much excess lead there was in that direction. And so we came up with a figure to relate to the 400 tons that this uh, roof was made of. And we decided that about a ton of lead was between the cathedral and one kilometer in that wedge towards the west. The thing that maybe I find less understandable is why after months, the government then said, okay, parents who are worried about their children's exposure can go to one of the hospitals, I think it was on the Ile de la Cité, and have that child tested for lead in blood. And eventually, I think about uh, 1,000 or 1,200 did, but that was over six months. So there was a very long time. And what I think there really should have been done is essentially try to get every child within a certain radius in and towards the West of going to school be tested. I think that would have been the right thing to do. Instead, this was a volunteer program. Of course, you can't force parents to have their children, but it could have been much more proactive. Testers could have come to the school and say, ah, we're going to take a break. Please come here. Let me quickly test your blood. And then you would have about a fifth of the total number of children that could have been tested. One thing that was interesting, so I, I was lucky because the story was picked up by Le Monde. It got some publicity and people started responding. And then I looked at the responses uh, to the article, which is maybe something one shouldn't do. <laughs> I learned afterwards. So some of them said, ah, this is good that this was done, but many of them were actually quite critical. You know, I remember one distinctly saying, why isn't this American? Because I was described as an American there. Uh, why isn't this American testing for lead on the lawn around the White House, for instance? Or who funded this study? Who gave authorization for this study? You'd like governments to make the measurements that are needed, but governments can be overwhelmed or there may be pressure not to do so. Citizens can do a lot. There, you know, what I did was really simple. And, and anybody could have done that. 
It surprised me that some people felt that if anything, this was almost illegal or inappropriate. And maybe that's what I want to do more of in the future is, is make people realize that they can use field kits. They can make measurements in the environment of properties that are relevant to health and shouldn't feel constrained to do that. I think as you've identified, there's a fear around testing by government agencies because they may not feel that they will be able to do anything about it beyond the testing. Why let people know? Yeah, and, and I understand it, but I do think information is very valuable and that is relatively easy to obtain. So for instance, if in a household, one room turns out to have you know, old lead paint that's peeling, what you can at least tell that household is don't let your child play in that room, play in another room. I think there is a lack of realization of how valuable environmental information obtained at the very local scale can be. At the same time, I agree a project shouldn't stop there. And so, for instance, I'm now working on a proposal to the National Science Foundation. It's called Civic. The idea is essentially to engage communities in U.S. cities in helping them resist either, you know, adapt to climate change or obtain access to a service that's not missing. And so what we are essentially in that proposal, what we are want to do is offer as a service testing. So we'll do testing using our kits, but just as importantly, we won't be in a position to certify if a home is safe. So we will say, you can use these kits as screening tools, and then we will help you access the services that are available for free from the city of New York. You can call in an evaluator. You can, you can also apply for certain types of funding to do something about it afterwards. So that's going to be the emphasis of our proposal is making households aware, but then once their environment has been tested and there is an issue, we don't want to be them high and draw. We want to sort of help them with that next step. What we aim to do is essentially find a way to contact every woman who's expecting a child during this year engage her, anticipate in this testing program. We want to encourage these families to test the environment before the child is born. We want to understand what are the barriers to testing, what are the barriers people face once they get some bad news, and we want to try to help them overcome that barrier. It's not geochemistry, it's some, and to some extent, it is public health. It's also behavioral science. It's over clearly a combination of that. What are some resources where people could find more information about the contaminants in their area and perhaps field test kits, et cetera? Well, you know, I happen to study soil and water for testing arsenic and well water. That's pretty inexpensive. It's about 30 cents per test. So, so we use that a lot. I mentioned the paint kits. I think on Amazon, you can get this kit for about $25 for three swabs, um, for, for eight swabs. So you could do eight tests in your house. The soil, so we developed the kits. We tried several times already, two times, to get some funding from NIH to produce this kit commercially, but we've been turned down. Uh, essentially because I think narrow-minded public health scientists felt that a kit that tells you where the soil is low, medium, or highly contaminated was not sufficient. That was not useful information. Even though in the proposal, we made it very clear every time that in the places where we see this kit being deployed, there is no alternative. We think that screening with something that is categorical rather than, you know, continuous scale, you know, one, two, three is very useful, but we haven't managed to convince everyone in our field, weather conditions, whether the wind is blowing from one part of town or the other. And uh, one of these manufacturers called Purple Air actually encourages also people to put then their data on the website uh, so that you can see uh, if you zoom in on New York City, I had to do that recently because I bought a couple of them and you could choose, you don't have to make the data public. 
that's uncalibrated data, but still if there are large fluctuations with the weather conditions, you can see it that all the centers, all the sensors actually really respond in parallel. It's quite amazing. So the combination of relatively inexpensive instrumentation, using mobile phones to connect these instruments or Wi-Fi networks to connect these to a centralized place and mapping that, there's a lot of rich information there that could be used. So again, using smartphone technology, you can do a lot. In the situation, which is often the case, where these contaminants are not spread uniformly, it's very heterogeneous, that makes it difficult to predict, but often it's also a way to the solution. So I think the trend for many of these contaminants in relatively rich countries has been good. In some countries, especially, of course, a developing country that maybe prioritizes economic growth over health, at least temporarily, maybe the air quality has worsened. It may be a while before it improves again. I think what's really important to make all this go in the right direction is transparency. It's data. You can look at government data. You shouldn't count on the government to give you all the data you need to make these choices. I think it more and more individual citizens make measurements, correlate these measurements across areas, interpret them together. I think that will also create political pressure. If someone wants to be elected, if you're lucky enough to be in a country where there are elections, if that person wants to be elected, maybe a good way to do that is to respond to this sort of information. And therefore, the quality of the environment will, will improve as well. Regulation can have the desired effect. Yeah, it may not always happen as fast as you'd like, but I do see improvements. And it's also true that not everyone in the city is affected equally in some areas. You know, I think it's often true in the U.S. at least that incinerators, for instance, are located in poorer parts of town. That doesn't seem right. But again, if people could monitor the information, then it's more likely that some policy change will be made. Maybe over time also policymakers, maybe businesses will realize that what they're expected to do isn't quite as costly as they think, especially if they do take into account all the years that people live less healthy than they could be and less productive. I think there's a natural tendency in the younger generations not to accept the world as it is. And I think that it should be encouraged. I think most people in government do have good intentions. So I think having a dialogue about issues that you care about, I think most businesses would realize that if there is some cause to changing their ways, I think they would. But if there has to be an argument, maybe it's also quite natural that there's a bit of pushback in both directions and then you find something that matches how fast society at large is willing to change. I'll give you one example. This happened maybe yeah, 30 years ago or 25 years ago. I was getting a haircut in Aix-en-Provence and there was a news report on the radio saying that such and such nuclear power plant uh, along the Wuhan River had emitted some radioactivity. So this was reported. And what surprised me is that the barber at the time said, but I don't understand why this sort of information is made public. It's going to create panic. And I, I was really struck by that. And I, I disagree with that. I think information, bad news too, should be made public. As soon as you start suppressing this sort of information, then the suspicion grows, uh, the tension increases, the polarization increases. So that I think is something that has changed. I hope it will continue that people realize, at least in the context of the environment, hiding things, pushing back too hard may only make it worse later. I certainly feel that could have a lot more raw materials uh, could be recycled. Since I study mining, I wonder, do we really need all this new copper? Could more copper be recycled? I think over time, society will be willing to pay more for recycling. 
What I'm hoping is that with greater transparency of information, avoiding developments that isn't checked in any way, what I'm hoping is that the children of these countries that still have a long ways to go to development, what I'm hoping is that they are not exposed to these toxicants and that they can live their lives to the full extent. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.